Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Welcome back, everybody, to the Two Tongues Podcast. A podcast where we get into a little bit of opinion scholarship. What does that mean? That means we're going to do some serious scholarship. We're going to really dig into some shit today. But we're going to be free to say whatever we want about it. By we, I guess I mean me. So I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm not an academic professionally. This is just a hobby. But the good news is you get a real perspective that's not held back by the expectations of academia and uh, my desire for tenure and, you know, walking on eggshells as people do. You don't have to worry about the political influence in academia that might impact what I'm going to say because I don't give a shit. So what are we doing today? I'm excited about it, actually. So I did an episode early on, if you guys remember, Season 1, Episode 62. If you remember, if not, you can go back and listen to it. Um, I called it Before the Bible. And what it was was me looking at two of the oldest myths that we have historically. A myth called the Enuma Elish from ancient Sumeria and Babylon. And a myth called the Epic of Gilgamesh, which some people are familiar with. Those, those stories go back before, by a long shot, before the Jewish stories were ever written down, maybe before they were even oral traditions, and people in the Middle East said very similar things. The whole flood story that we hear about from Noah is there. The creation of the earth that you see in Genesis and of human beings is there, uh, with some twists, with some interesting twists. And I laid that out there. I wanted to show the compare and contrast the Bible stories from these ancient Mesopotamian stories. Um, and then just sort of ask questions about which influenced the other, um, you know, how interesting it was the way, the, in the ways that they are the same and the ways that they differ. And I pointed out that many of those people in the Middle East who believed those things were Semitic people just like the Jews, Semitic people. They shared a common ancestor language. They shared common traditions. They were aware of the same guys. They lived in the same regions. And there was lots of interesting things to talk about. Fast forward to today. I decided to read something that I've been wanting to read for a very long time, probably 15 years, and I haven't for whatever reason. Um, the holy books of a religion called Zoroastrianism. Now, I want to point out, Zoroastrianism, the prophet of this religion, uh, Zarathustra or Zoroaster, goes back to ancient Persia. 
same part of the world, right? The Persian Empire um, had conquered much of the land and the people that brought us the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh. But these people were not Semites. And if and I've made this mistake <laughs> when I was a younger man, um, if you think that the Arabs uh, in the Middle East and the Ara- Iranian people there, neighbors basically, if you think that they're related people, that they look the same, that they worship the same religion, they're all they're all Muslims, let's say. They're basically brothers or cousins. They must be. Well, you'd be wrong. The, Ar- the Iranian people, they consider themselves to be Persian, and, and Persian folks are Indo-European people. They're related to the Germanic tribes. They're related to the Celts in Ireland. They're not at all the same family genetically or the same language group as the Arabs and, uh, and even the, uh, the Jews. They're not Semites. However, their most ancient religion, which, by the way, is one of the most, if not the most ancient religion that we have uh, record of, it's certainly, along with Hinduism, one of the oldest religions that's continuously practiced to this day. And there's groups of people called the Parsi, mostly living in India, that still carry on this faith. And once upon a time, it was a world-conquering religion. And we'll get into it. I'll give you some of the history here. But when I was a college student in my early days, I learned about this for the first time, and I was told about how much, how much from Judaism and Christianity, well, how much of the myths and beliefs can be traced back before the time of Judaism into this Zoroastrian faith. And it blew my mind. Literally, it blew my freaking 18-year-old mind. But I never read the holy books myself. So that's what I did today. Uh, not today, the last, last, few, last few days. Putting this together. And I, one of the things I did was I went on YouTube. I was searching for um, information about the creation story, the myth that the Zoroastrian folks give for the creation of the cosmos and for the creation of human beings, because to me that's the most important part of any religious tradition. And I had a really hard time finding anything good online. What I found was a lot of like Sunday school type stories, like little animated videos that you might show children, something that you might have seen in Sunday school when you were a kid. And it's fine, don't get me wrong. It's very informational, it's concise. I don't have to worry about the language differences, you know. But what I wanted was something more academic. I wanted to read the actual text and get an idea of what, of what it was saying. I didn't want to hear the dumbed-down, simple version. I wanted to really see it. And because I couldn't find that anywhere, I decided I'll do it. I'll bring it to you. If I wanted to see it, somebody else is going to want to see it. So I'm going to bring it to you. So the holy book of Zoroastrianism is called the Avesta. Sometimes it's called the Zen Avesta, which I think I think means the new Avesta or something like that. And there's some interesting things here because um, the prophet of this religion, and remember, just to set the stage, if you go back to ancient Persia, you're 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 looking at a polytheistic tribal society worshiping lots of different gods. So 
even the gods that we're going to be talking about and the supernatural figures that we're going to be talking about today, Ahura Mazda, for instance, Zervan, for instance, these are characters that predate Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster was born into this faith of worshiping multiple gods, and he was a reformer. You know, he's the, he's the Pharaoh Akhenaten type of character. He's the Moses type character. He's bringing a new understanding, a new revelation to the people. And it's something quite like a monotheism. And it has that thread with Judaism. It's something quite like the worship of one God for the first time in human history. And the ancient language uh, is called Avestan that this was written in. It's related really closely to Sanskrit, by the way. So the Rig Veda, which I have sitting around here somewhere, the Rig Veda of ancient India, one of the oldest holy books that we have, maybe the oldest that we have, is very closely related to the Avesta. So when you think about the Hindu religion and the ancient Sanskrit language, it's very similar in, in time uh, and related very closely to um, this ancient Persian faith and language. And the copy that I read, first of all, I want to tell you, the Avesta is made up of several sections, several books. Um, a section called the Gathas. They're attributed to Zoroaster. It would be like, these are the sayings of Jesus, or these are the sayings of Moses, or whatever it is. Um, those are called the Gathas. But there's more than that. There's commentaries. And the commentaries are called Zand, and that's where we get this word Zindavista, or Zindavesta, however you pronounce that. And it was written down later, so far later, that it was actually a different language. Avestan wasn't wasn't used anymore, kind of like the way Latin has fallen out of favor in place of all of the modern languages. It's gone away, and it's been replaced by a language I'll probably mispronounce, um, Balavi, B-A, excuse me, P-A-H-L-A-V-I. And this is like a medieval Persian language. So what I'm going to read for, from you, for you today is from this commentary on Zoroastrianism. It's because the creation story isn't exactly in the Gathas. It's not in the sayings of Zoroaster, but it is written down in the later writings. It's, it's documented in the later writings. And so what I'm going to read is from part one of the um, Pallavi texts. Um, the version I'm reading is from the Sacred Books of the East, volume five, translated by E.W. West in 1880. And if you want to read this, you can read it for free on, uh, online. If you go to sacred-text.com, you can find lots of great stuff there, including the Zendavesta. And um, it opens up really talking about some background. And it basically says that the Zand language, this is not Avestan, it's a later language. But the early scholars, the early European scholars who got their hands on it thought that it was the same. And we can really only apply that word Zand to these uh, Pallavi um, commentaries, and that's what we're going to read today. Again, Pallavi is a medieval Persian language. It's um, far more recent than the Avestan language. The earliest inscriptions that we have of this language uh, go back to around the 200s, early 200s AD, during the um, uh, Sasanian dynasty in Persia, and they last, that language lasts all the way up through about 880 
AD. So that's kind of the time frame. Uh, and that's important because the Avesta and the religion, uh, the Zoroastrian religion, predates that period. It goes back way, way, way before 200 AD. Remember, Jesus himself was born in, right around 84 or something like that. This language predates Christianity. In fact, predates Judaism. So we're going way back to reach the actual prophet Zoroaster. The thing about it is, if you look it up, you're going to find that the chronology is debated. There's not a whole lot that lets us nail down when Zoroaster actually lived. Most believe he lived as early as 1700 BC, a long, long time ago. And the names of the key deities that we're going to, we're going to encounter here they also predate Zoroastrianism, so it's important to know Zoroaster was a religious reformer. He was talking about gods that were worshipped alongside other gods, many, many other gods. And he's saying something like, no, this god is the only god. He's saying something like that, like what the Pharaoh Akhenaten would say, like what Moses would say. Now, Zoroastrianism was actually the state religion of the Persian Empire, under Darius I, which goes back to 500 BC. So you can see now we're jumping way back in time. Now remember, it was already the state religion of the empire. Now, who knows how long it took, how long the, the beliefs existed, how long the religion existed, how far it spread before it became adopted, right, as the state religion. Think about how long Christianity was around before Constantine said, Christianity is the religion of the, of the Roman Empire. And even from the time of Darius, it was the state religion for more than a thousand years. From 500 BC all the way up until 650 AD, it was the state religion of the Persian Empire. And I'm going to say that it's the earliest form of a dualistic kind of monotheism. And I know that sounds like a conflict in terms, but dualism and monotheism really aren't so much a conflict when you think about Christianity, for instance, or Judeo-Christianity as a monotheistic religion. Everybody agrees that's the case. We, believe, we worship one God. And yet, when you ask a Jew or a, Christ, or a Christian, they're going to tell you about Lucifer, about Satan, Shaitan, the adversary. They're going to tell you about the fallen angel. They're going to tell you that there is a powerful force of evil, a supernatural God of evil that counteracts the great God, the God of good. And so you have this dualism, the God of evil and the God of good. And I know people will say, look, it's not exactly like that in Judaism. It's not exactly like that in Christianity. But, you know, bullshit, right? Bullshit. I grew up in Christianity. That's how it was taught to me in Sunday school. There is a force of evil that permeates the cosmos, and there's a force of good. And they're basically equals. And they're basically struggling all the time. And at the end of time, they're going to come to a head, and good is finally going to conquer evil. That story, by the way, comes from Zoroastrianism. So, a couple things I want to say about this while we're talking about dualism, like we have two gods, and monotheism, like we really only have one god. How do we reconcile this? How did the Zoroastrians reconcile this? Well, they describe a world that's full of angels and demons. So there's plenty of supernatural forces out there. And yet, those forces are considered to be emanations from either God or the devil. 
Um, they don't use those words exactly. We're going to talk about that more. But they're not exactly different from God. They're emanations. They're aspects of God. So they kind of roll up into the one God. And that's how we get around this dualism. Now, some versions of this, uh, some versions of this myth are going to talk about. They're going to talk about the Creator God. His name is Ahura Mazda, the Wise Lord. He's the Creator God. He's God the Father for Christians and Jews, oh, Christians rather. And from Ahura Mazda, from Ahura Mazda came two spirits. Sometimes they're called Angramanyu and Spintamanyu. And by the way, Spintamanyu means something like Holy Spirit. So you have that connection to, to Christianity. And Angramanyu is like the evil spirit. And so you can see that these, this kind of like set of opposites emerges from God. From Ahura Mazda comes Angramanyu and Spintamanyu. And in later versions, you're going to hear that you're going to hear that Ahura Mazda, this, this character that is the creator that's there in the beginning, he gets swapped out for this character named Zervan. And Zervan is another one of these ancient Iranian deities that existed long before Zoroastrianism and was adopted for, for this faith to tell the story. And so you can imagine, rather than having Ahura Mazda as the creator and creating Angramanyu and Spintamanyu, you just kind of swap the names around. And instead of Ahura Mazda, you have Zervan. And from Zervan, you get Ahura Mazda, the good god, and Ariman, the evil god. And they both roll up into Zervan. Just like Angramanyu and Spentaman, you roll up into Ahura Mazda. There is only one god, but that one god immediately gets divided into two, split into opposites. And that's important. It's very important because it comes back to this symbol that we refer to all the time that's there in our earliest religious traditions, uh, that's there in our creation stories, the symbol of the Ouroboros, the generative union of opposites, the thing, the symbol that represents what was there in the beginning, God. Now, I'm going to use the words Ahura Mazda and Ariman for the rest of this. I'm going to try to do that. Ahura Mazda, you can think of as God. Ariman, you can think about as the devil. And in the, in the religion, they're considered to be co-eternal beings. And one of them, God, Ahura Mazda, is above, and Ariman is below. And in the middle, you have this space that divides them. And that's, that's the space where creation happens. That's where the world is eventually placed, in between these two great forces, these opposites, good and evil. And the world becomes the meeting place of the good and the evil forces. It becomes the battleground. Now, Christians understand this already because, because we're raised to believe that, that the world is sort of the territory of the devil, that, that for whatever reason, God allows this. And this is the reason why human beings have to be vigilant and fight against temptation and evil all the time. There's always this risk, there's always this uh, danger that we have to be um, defending ourselves from. And this comes directly from this Zoroastrian idea, and it's so much more of a cosmic conflict 
in Zoroastrianism. It's been watered down, as far as I'm concerned, in Judeo-Christianity. It's been watered down. This cosmic battle of the forces of good and evil in Zoroastrianism is foundational to the story. And it, and it continues through the entire religion all the way to the end of time. When, when there's going to be this Armageddon, there's going to be this battle of good and evil, this final battle when evil is conquered. And some of that rings true because we, we recognize that with our Christian ears. But it goes way back before Christianity. So that brings me to the first section, which I'm going to call a pact with the devil. It's kind of interesting because I'm going to be reading what is essentially Genesis for the Zoroastrians. And I'm calling it a pact with the devil. It's not at all like what you would expect if you're familiar with Genesis. It might remind you something more like the book of Job. But that's where we're going to begin. Now I want to mention that this whole in the beginning stuff that you see at the beginning of Genesis. It's sort of assumed. It's not... It's not explicitly talked about what happens in the beginning. It's almost like the movie starts and it's 10 minutes in. That's how it feels to me when I read the story. So it's like we begin and we're already you know, part way in. And it, we had a similar thing when we were looking at the uh, Sumerian and Babylonian stories because you remember that the primordial gods in that case were Tiamat and Apsu. Feminine and the masculine, chaos and order. You know, these two primordial forces, just like good and evil, opposites. And they were one. They were combined in one thing in the beginning. And then they get split off into, into Tiamat and Apsu. And that may not sound super familiar from the biblical story, but I'm going to push back on that because if you read the book of Genesis, what you will see is that in the beginning, what happens? God creates the heavens and the earth. So remember, Tiamat and Apsu were one thing that gets split up into two separate things. So from this one thing comes Tiamat and Apsu. In the Bible, you have the same thing. From God, from this one thing, you get the heavens and the earth. And you can see the same thing if you go to, if you go to ancient Greece and you look at their creation story from, from Hesiod. Hesiod talks about, in the beginning there was chaos, and from chaos was born Uranus and Gaia, the heavens and the earth. If you look at the Rig Veda, remember the, the ancient Indian story, which is really parallel to the Avesta, you have this golden egg, this golden embryo, the world egg, that's one thing, and from it is born the earth and the sky. And we have the same thing here in Zoroastrianism. From Zervan, or from, from Ahura Mazda, we get the force of good and the force of evil. The spirit of good and the spirit of evil. Ariman and Ahura Mazda. So now I'm going to get into the text. And this is very highly annotated, but I want, you to, I want it to be as digestible as possible for you. So here we go. The, re- the region of light is the place of Ahura Mazda which they call endless light, while Ariman in darkness, in the place of that darkness, they call the endless dark. Between them was empty space. Revelation is the explanation of both spirits together. 
All right, so you get this model. You've got, you've got the region of light and the region of darkness. The region of light is the realm of Ariman, excuse me, of, of Oramaz, God. The region of darkness is, is the region of Ariman, the devil. And in between them is empty space. So this is the model we have. That's what's there in the beginning. It's almost like after the separation has occurred. That's, that's where we begin. And then there's this weird sentence here. Revelation is the explanation of both spirits together. And I just have to pause on that for a second because this is, this is critical. This is the Ouroboros. This is what we're seeing at the very beginning of the Zoroastrian story. They're saying the revelation, like the knowledge, the truth is that both spirits, Ahura Mazda and Ahriman, are together. So at once they were together and now they've been separated. They're opposites in union. There's something that we're supposed to be able to understand as a wholeness, as something one and together. That's the, that's the symbol of the Ouroboros, the same symbol we saw when we looked at the Babylonian stories and saw Tiamat and Apsu together. The same thing the Rig Veda talks about when we imagine this cosmic egg, and in that egg is the earth and the sky. And it goes on, it says, Both are limited and unlimited spirits. Between them is a void, and one is not connected with the other. Both things are in, are in the creation of Ahura Mazda. All right, so we have something interesting here. Both are limited and unlimited spirits. And you can see that, again, are opposites, limited and unlimited. And they're both considered to be both limited and unlimited. So you have, again, the union of opposites. You have the same paradox that we started with, this reference back to the Ouroboros. And between them is a void. This is the space between them, where they don't, they, they don't connect, they don't, they don't you know, communicate with, another, with one another. So they're, they're unlimited light and dark. Remember, that's what, that's what they said. God is unlimited light. Ariman is unlimited dark. But they're limited in the sense that they're limited to themselves. There's a space between them and they don't interact with each other. And then it says something interesting. Both things are in the creation of Ahura Mazda. So they were one before they were many. goes on, it says, Ahura Mazda knew that Ariman exists and that he infuses with malice till the end. The evil spirit was not aware of the existence of Ahura Mazda. He arose from the abyss and came in unto the light which he saw. He rushed in to destroy that light and he saw its glory was greater than his own. So he fled back to the gloomy darkness and formed many demons and fiends. All right, so you have this moment where Ariman sees the light of God, the light of Ahura Mazda. And his first instinct is to rush towards it and destroy it, right? Because that's what Ariman is, the spirit of evil, the spirit of destruction. That's what he wants. He wants to destroy. But when he finally gets up to the light, he sees that its glory is greater than his own. And he's afraid. He flees back into the darkness. And he starts forming demons and fiends. He needs help. He needs more help so he can destroy this thing that's greater than itself. Then it says, Afterwards, the evil spirit saw the creatures of Ahura Mazda. 
and they seemed to him commendable. And he commended the creatures and creation of Ahura Mazda. Then Ahura Mazda went to meet the evil spirit and proposed peace to him and spoke, Evil spirit, bring assistance into my creatures and offer praise. In reward, you and your creatures may become immortal. So what's happened here? While Ariman is, is back in the dark, creating demons to help him destroy God, God seems to be doing the same thing. He's creating creatures of light. And it says that, that Ariman sees these creatures of light, and, he, and they seem commendable to him. And, and Ahura Mazda went down to him and said, Praise these creatures that I've created. Assist them. Be their, be their servant. And I'll reward you by making you and your demons immortal. He's basically offering an olive branch, trying to join back together, you know, th this other side of himself. And the evil spirit shouted, I will not provide assistance for thy creatures. I will not offer praise. I will destroy thy creatures forever and everlasting. I will force them into dissatisfaction to thee and affection for myself. Woo! Then be fighting words. So he's not having it. The devil's not having it at all. He says, no, I will not offer praise to these creatures. I will destroy them forever and everlasting. Then he says, not only that, I'll force them to hate you and love me. I, that, there's some social commentary, by the way. There's definitely something to be said there. But also something I want to point out. This story seems to make its way into Islam. And in Surah 7 of the Quran, there's a story about God asking the angels to bow down before mankind because mankind, of course, is his, his greatest creation. And one of those angels, the one we would call Lucifer, but in, in Islam they call Iblis, would not bow. He was arrogant. He said, no, I won't bow down before man. You made man out of dirt. I'm an angel. I was made from holy fire. You know, he's like, I will not bow. And, of course, punishment for that is in, in the Quran is that God throws the devil out, uh, you know, of paradise. And you have this exact same story here where Ahura Mazda says, offer praise and bow down. And, and Ahura Mazda says, no. And that's what splits them. That's what makes them irreconcilable. It goes on. Ahura Mazda knew... If I do not grant a period of contest, then it will be possible for him to cause the seduction of my creatures. As even now there are many who practice wrong more than right. And Ahura Mazda spoke, The conflict may be for nine thousand years. For he knew that by appointing this period, the evil would become undone. And the evil spirit was content with that agreement. So it's kind of interesting. He, he, what's happening here is Ahura Mazda says, look, if you're not going to give praise and, and become immortal and join, and join with me, then I'm going to allot a period of time for our fighting one another. And it's not clear why this is the case, but he says if he didn't do that, if he didn't set this temporary time, that the devil, Ariman, would have a chance to seduce these creatures of light, the creatures of Ahura Mazda. But if he puts this time period on it, it basically seals the fate of the devil. So he sort of tricks him 
And he can do that because Ahura Mazda is omniscient. He can see everything. And Ariman is not. And so the evil spirit agreed without realizing that he was doing himself in. And it goes on. Ahura Mazda knew that for 3,000 years, everything proceeds by the will of Ahura Mazda. 3,000 years, there is an intermingling of the wills of Ahura Mazda and Ariman. In the last 3,000 years, the evil spirit is disabled. And so the evil spirit became confounded and fell back to the gloomy darkness and remained 3,000 years. So what, what he's basically foreshadowing here is this 9,000-year period he's allotted for the war between, between uh, God and, and the devil. The first 3,000 years are going to be the period of God, when the evil can't touch the creation of God. The middle 3,000 years is going to be this intermingling of good and evil together, Ahura Mazda and Ariman. And the last 3,000 years are going to belong to the devil, but they're going to be his final years. It's going to result in his demise, ultimately. Now that brings us to the next section which I'm going to call creation. Now, while I'm talking through this, I want you to pay attention, um, based on your memory anyway, of the Jewish stories in the, in the book of Genesis. And try to, try to see the parallels, because there are many. We've already seen this, this dynamic of the good God and the bad God and conflict with, it, with each other, um, the evil spirits wanting to tear, tear down the creations of God and, and uh, contaminate human beings and all that. You can see all of this, which is similar to what you see in Judaism. But I want you to pay attention uh, you know, even, even more to those, to those things as we go through. This is going to be the creation. All right, so now we're in this first 3,000-year period. It goes, Ahura Mazda created his creatures. First he produced Bahuman, which means good thought, by whom the progress of his creatures was advanced. The evil spirit first created, oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, uh, Mythkot, which means falsehood, and then Akuman, which means evil thought. And then this goes on for a while, where they're naming the different creatures that God and the devil are creating. But I want you to pay attention, because each one of these spirits or angels or demons, that you might, you might call them, that are being created, um, they correspond to something like good thought or evil thought, falsehood, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so you can see that they're representations of something that has a embodied reality on earth. But it's also important to remember that these things are emanations of Ahura Mazda, God, and emanations of the devil, Ariman. It's not like these are, these are necessarily standalone gods on their own. There's really only, really only these two forces, good and evil. And what we're seeing here is more division you know, among each side. So the good side gets divided into all these different things. They're called Amisha Spintas, which is like, like archangels. And there's seven of them. And on the evil side, again, there's, there's many of them as well. And it goes on. Of Ahura Mazda's creatures of the world, the first was the sky, the second water, the third earth, the fourth plants, the fifth animals, the sixth mankind. 
And so you notice something here I want to point to, that God's creations, once he gets to creating the physical world, are six steps. Sky, water, earth, plants, animals, mankind. There's six of them. And that mirrors the sixth days of creation in the book of Genesis. On the first day, right? On the second day. So you have exactly this six-day creation period mirrored in Zoroastrianism. Then it goes on. Ahura Mazda performed the um, Yazisan, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, but again, a Persian word apparently, uh, performed the Yazisan ceremony with the archangels. So presumably some sort of religious ceremony. He deliberated with the consciousness and guardian spirits of men and spoke. Which seems to you more advantageous? That you shall contend in a bodily form with the fiend and the fiend shall perish, and in the end I shall have you prepared again perfect and immortal? Or that it be always necessary to provide you protection from the destroyer? So this is interesting here. This is God actually communing with consciousness and the guardian spirits of men. So these are presumably spiritual forces, angels, something that exists there with him that he's created. But it's not yet manifest, right? Because mankind hasn't come about yet. But the spirit of mankind, which he calls consciousness and guardian spirits of men, isn't that something? Like the consciousness that will become our consciousness already existed with God in the beginning. And he's speaking to them. He says, which would you prefer that I put you in a body and that you're, you're forced to contend with Ariman and evil on earth until a time when, when the evil will finally be defeated and you will become perfect and immortal and never have to worry about that again? Or would you rather I not put you in a body and always have to keep you protected from Ar- Ariman? Sort of an interesting thing. We don't see that in, in, in the Bible. We didn't see that in the Anum Elish. But he seems to give human consciousness a choice to become embodied or not. And it goes on, it says, the guardian spirits of men became of the same opinion about going to the world and their becoming at last perfect and immortal in the future existence forever and everlasting. So I want to point out The future existence is a phrase that we see over and over and over again in Zoroastrianism. Christians will recognize this if we say something like the kingdom of God or the new Jerusalem. If we talk about the world that will come, that will be restored after Armageddon, after the final battle of good and evil, when God makes a perfect world again where we can live. This is exactly what you're seeing in Zoroastrianism, which they refer to as the future existence. And this is what the consciousness and guardian spirits of men decided upon. Yes, we want to be embodied. Yes, we want want to ultimately conquer evil and Ahriman and live perfect and immortal with God. Then it goes on. During the 3,000 years of confusion, so this is those first 3,000 years when, the, when Ahriman and the, and the demons are not allowed to be, uh, you know, they're, they're stuck in the, in the infinite darkness. It says, 
the archfiends of the demons shouted, Rise up, thou father of us, for we will cause a conflict in the world. But that wicked evil spirit was not able to lift up his head until the completion of the three thousand years. And again shouted, Rise up, thou father of us, for in that conflict I will shed much vexation on the righteous man. Through my deeds life will not be wanted, and I will destroy their living souls. I will vex the water, I will vex the plants, I will vex the fire, I will make the whole creation of Ahura Mazda vexed. And the evil spirit was delighted and started up from that confusion. Whew, buddy. So now you have, you have this arch demon who's trying to wake up Ariman. He's trying to rouse the great evil spirit to finally get up from its slumber and do what it, what it does and destroy the work of God. And this second time around manages to rouse Ariman. And it says, The evil spirit with the demons went towards the luminaries, and he saw the sky, and he led them up, fraught with malicious intention. He stood up upon the inside of the sky and sprang like a snake down to earth. So, again, if you remember, this, this world of eternal darkness is below the realm of, of, of being, the realm of the earth. So he goes up to it, right? He goes up to the earth and springs down into the earth like a snake. So now you have the devil entering the earth for the first time. And I want to, I want to point out that he goes into the earth like a snake. And we're going to see serpent imagery, snakes and lizards and things that are, that are talked about as we go on that are related to the devil. They're related to Ariman. Ariman enters the earth like a snake. And that's important if you know your Bible because the serpent in the garden, we, we relate to the devil, do we not? It goes on. The sky was frightened by him and the earth was pierced and entered by him. He rushed out upon the whole creation and made the world as dark at midday as though it were night. Noxious creatures were diffused over the earth, biting and venomous. Blight was diffused over the vegetation, and it withered away. Avarice, want, pain, hunger, disease, lust, and lethargy were diffused abroad. Right, so the devil gets in there, and all of the evil things happen. This is like Pandora's box from the Greek myth is opened, and all of the evil and the, and the terrible things about the world and 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 everything are are released. And it says, and the creatures of Ahura Mazda were all rendered useless except Geomard. So a thousand demons were let forth on Geomard, but his appointed time had not come. All right, let me just stop and tell you who Geomard is. Interestingly, this, the text doesn't talk about Geomard being created. Geomard just appears in the story. But it's important to know that Geomard means mortal life. So Geomard is like the first man, the first mortal creature, right? So when the devil enters the world and it destroys the water and the plants and the fire and everything that it's corrupted and destroyed... 
it, it, it's able to totally destroy everything except for Geomart, the first man. And because it can't destroy Geomart, it sends a thousand demons to him to try to get him, try to get this last bit. But the scripture says, but the, the appointed time had not come, right? It wasn't Geomart's time. And Geomart spoke, he said, although the destroyer has come, mankind will be all of my race, right? So he's going to continue on the human race. Now, I want to say, this story about the creation of Geomard as the first man, um, it's not the only story of the creation of men in this. We're going to see in just a minute. There's another story here about the, sort of an Adam and Eve character that are born, and we're going to see it very soon. But what I want to point to is that Geomard and Adam and Eve are separate creations in, in the Zoroastrian story. And this is important if you know your Bible, because in the book of Genesis, there's two stories about the creation of human beings. There's one in which Adam and Eve are created from, from the dust of the earth. There's another story where, where Eve is created from Adam's rib, right? And the first story, they're not even called Adam and Eve, it's just man and woman. And so there are these two stories of the creation of man in the Bible that aren't reconciled with one another. And, and lots of people, the rabbis, you know, in ancient times pointed that out. You know, they even proposed that there was a, another, another Eve. They called they call Lilith. And there's all sorts of stories you can read in the Talmud about it when they're trying to reconcile these two different stories about the creation of man. But the explanation for this seems to me to go back to Zoroastrianism when there was two separate stories of the creation of mortal life. Geomard being the first. And the story continues. Ninety days and nights the heavenly angels contended in the world with the demons and hurled them to hell. And the rampart of the sky was formed so that the adversary should not be able to mingle with it. So what that means here is that while the angels and demons are doing battle on earth, there's sort of a rampart, which is like a battlement. It's like a, a barrier that gets formed in the sky. And that's going to keep the evil from being able to escape. And that's important because the story continues like this. The evil spirit, even as he looked upon the angels and his own violence, wished to rush back. The spirit of the sky arrayed against the evil spirit, and no passage was found. And he beheld the annihilation of the demons and his own impotence. So what's happened here? So the angels, in this case the sky, has created this barrier around the earth. Now Ariman is trying to escape like he did before. He's trying to rush back into the darkness, rush back to his realm. But this time he can't. He can't escape. He's locked into the world. And he's forced to watch while his demons are destroyed. And he's forced to watch himself be unable to, to triumph. And so what you have here is something very different from a Jewish or Christian understanding. You have the earth who's seen as a kind of prison for the devil. It's a place where he's, he's kept so that 
He's kept so that he's vulnerable and waiting for the final days of Armageddon when when good will finally triumph, when Araman will finally be defeated. He's on death row. And that prison is earth. And our job as human beings, according to Zoroastrianism, is to do good things, good thoughts, good deeds, good actions. And those things are constantly chipping away, constantly stabbing little little wounds, uh, you know, against Ariman, against the devil. So we're, in that sense, we're soldiers of righteousness. We're soldiers of God. And our lives and our purpose is to do damage, to do violence to the devil. It's interesting, right? We're the prison guards. <laughs> and then it says, Hell is in the middle of the earth. There where the evil spirits pierced the earth and rushed in upon it as all the possessions of the world were changing into duality. All right, so this idea of hell being in the center of the earth, um, I'm not sure that's biblical. Maybe it is. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, Greek stories about Tartarus, and there's some of that language that appears in the Bible as well, and the angels being thrown into the, to the fires and, and, and all that, um, you know, being locked in the earth. And we imagine as Christians, especially growing up as children, that hell is in the middle of the earth where it's hot. And um, and this comes from Zoroastrianism. And this place that they've created, this hell where they're damned to, to rest, they can't escape, remember, they're locked in there where they're damned to be. This is the same space, the same hole that they created when they rushed into the earth that they're now condemned to, to exist in. And then something strange here. At the end where it says, as all the possessions of the world were changed into duality, so you see that the spirit of good and the spirit of evil are now there on the earth together. And so you have these opposite opposing forces that are coexisting in the world. And this is responsible for the duality of the world. Everything, everything in our experience is like this. High and low, hot and cold, living and dead, masculine and feminine, conscious and unconscious. Everything is a duality. And this is what... Ahura Mazda predicted in the beginning when he said that this middle 3,000-year period, when, when Ahura Mazda and Ariman exist together on, on earth, when their, their wills are intermingled, that's what it said. This is this illustration of the duality, that these opposites are coming into union in the material cosmos, on, on, on the earth. So the manifestation of that is, is embodied and they're in the material cosmos and within human beings. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call Noah and the generations of men. Okay, so what do I, what do I mean? We know the Noah story. That's the great flood. That's the Noah story. We saw that when we, when we read uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. We, we saw that from the Babylonian version, very similar to what you see in the Bible. The Ark... You know, coming to rest on the mountain, um, the doves being released, all of those details we saw from the Babylonian stories. But we also see something like that here in the Zoroastrian myth. It's a little different, but it's here nonetheless. Remember, this battle is being waged on earth between good and evil. And it goes like this. The second conflict was waged with water. Thirty days and nights... And the water stood the height of a man over the whole of this earth. 
and the noxious creatures all killed by the rain went into the holes of the earth. Okay, so God is now flooding the earth in order to destroy all of these wicked things that Ariman brought into the earth. He corrupted it with, with you know, uh, creatures that were venomous and stinging and toxic and, you know, all of that. So God cleanses the earth with water. And I'm going to give you a parallel in the book of Genesis in chapter 6 when it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. He said, I will destroy both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. And this is what happens, right? The water stood the height of a man over the whole of this earth and the noxious creatures all killed by the rain. And the story continues. Afterwards, the water was all swept away and was brought out to the borders of the earth. And the ocean arose therefrom. The poison and venom of the noxious creatures which were in the earth were all mixed up in the water, and it became salt. Okay, so here you have an explanation for why the ocean is salty, right? Because of all, when, the, when, the, when God brought the waters and brought the great flood, and it, and it swept away all of this, you know, um, all of these noxious creatures, that their venom and their poison and all of the noxiousness that were brought, brought by the devil, that's what got swept away by the ocean water. That's why the water is salty. That's why if you drink salt water, you'll die. And it's, it's funny because, well, it's, it's kind of a poetic, obviously a poetic um, uh, story, but it also reminds me of these ancient tribal stories, like Native American stories that explain uh, the eclipse by saying that the cosmic serpent is swallowing the sun. It's like this is an explanation for why, you know, something in, in nature is the way it is. It's a mythological explanation. And we see something like that here. And then it goes on. It says, Geomard, remember, he was the first man, in passing away gave forth seed. That seed was purified by the light of the sun. Masha and Mashana grew up from the earth in such a manner that they were connected together. So connected, it was not clear which is the male and which the female. All right, so those, you see, are our Adam and Eve. Masha and Mashiana, Adam and Eve. So Geomard passes away and gives forth the seed of the next generation, Masha and Mashiana. So they, they grow up from the earth. Remember, they were the seed of Geomard. And so they grow up from the earth. They literally sprout from the earth like plants. Just like, you know, again, after a great flood, after a great rain, the desert just becomes alive and sh all, these, all these plants shoot up through the soil and, and, and so forth. This is the image you get. After the flood, Mashia and Mashiana sprout up from the earth. And it says that they were connected together so close, it wasn't clear which was male and which was female. They were connected together. And of course, that reminds me of that first story in Genesis about the creation of, of man, when God says that he created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And it continues... 
as it is said that both of them uh, changed from the shape of a plant into the shape of a man, and the breath went into them, which is the soul. Okay, so where in the Bible God uses the you know the clay, the 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 dust of the earth to create the form of man, in this story they originally sprout up like plants. And then they're changed from the shape of a plant into the shape of a man. But here's the, here's the key part. And the breath went into them, which is the soul. Where have I heard that before? Genesis chapter 2, which says, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Right? And the breath went into them, which is the soul and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's almost, it's almost word for word. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the fall. So we all know what that means. The fall of Adam and Eve from the Bible, when evil enters, enters, the, the, uh, enter, you know, enters their experience, when they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and you know, the, the historical period begins, the fall starts like this. Ahura Mazda spoke to them. This is the Adam and Eve characters. You are man. You are the ancestry of the world. Perform devoutly the duty of the law. Think good thoughts. Speak good words. Do good deeds and worship no demons. And the first words spoken by them were these. Ahura Mazda created the water and the earth, plants and animals, stars, moon, and sun, and all prosperity. And afterwards, they were corrupted, and they exclaimed that the evil spirit created the water and earth and the other things. That false speech was spoken through the will of the demons, and through it they became wicked, and their souls damned to hell until the future existence. All right, so that's a little bit of a different story, right? We're not seeing uh, we're not seeing the the um, the tree of knowledge. We're not seeing the serpent here. We're not seeing any of that. What are we seeing though? A couple things I want to point out here. Something very important is the first thing that God says to Adam and Eve are perform the duty of the law. And what is that? Think good thoughts, speak good words, and do good deeds. Now this to this day. This is like the Ten Commandments of Zoroastrianism. Think good thoughts, speak good words, and do good deeds. This is the slogan of the religion. It's probably not the right word, but you get the picture. Even to this day, this is very important. This is what God told human beings to do. The very first thing he said, do these things. Like This is the primary commandment. And they're connected. If you ask a Zoroastrian, they'll tell you that words proceed from thoughts. So you have thoughts first, and then the words come. And deeds proceed from words. What, what you've spoken, then you will carry out. And so they, they follow from each other. So you keep your thoughts good and pure, and your words good and pure, so that your deeds may be good and pure. And that's how you support good and defeat evil. Secondly, I want to I say, Speak good words is very important. 
especially when you think that good thoughts and good, you know, good thoughts was one of the first, you know, spirits, the angels that God creates. And false speech is one of the first demons that the devil creates. And so God tells them to speak good words. And what they do is turn around and, and, and speak false words. They say that it's Ahriman, the devil, who created the, the earth and the water and all the other things. And the scripture says that it was that false speech. It was through that false speech that they were condemned to hell until the future existence, until kingdom come. Now, why that's important for a Christian is because the words and the magic of speech are connected to the logos. And the logos is something in Christianity which is connected to to Jesus. It's the spirit of God that was on the surface of the waters in the beginning. It's the thing that that became Jesus in the flesh, that was embodied. The Logos, that speech, the Word, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So you see this emphasis on Word and speech in Zoroastrianism. Very, very fundamentally important. And you can see that same thing in Christianity, which I find fascinating. And it goes on, it says, And they had gone thirty days without food, covered with clothing of herbage and went forth into the wilderness. So Adam and Eve are, are you know, forced to go explore and go make their lives for themselves. And we see that same parallel in the Bible when, when in Genesis when it says, God made coats of skin and clothed them and sent them forth from the Garden of Eden. Now what happens when Adam and Eve leave the Garden? In the, in the biblical story, we have the Cain and Abel story that comes right on the heels of that when Cain, you know, when, uh, when Cain kills Abel. And so you have evil just immediately pouring into the earth, ultimately leading to Noah and, and that story in the Bible. So when Adam and Eve leave the garden, lots of evil starts to come, in, come into the earth. And if we go to the Zoroastrian story, it goes like this. Owing to the gracelessness which, which, with which they practice... Demons became more oppressive. So what does that mean? Remember, what did God tell them to do? Good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. Those things, they didn't practice gracefully, whatever that means. They didn't do a good job of that. And as a response, the demons became more powerful on earth. It goes on, it says, Then the demons shouted out of the darkness, You are man. Worship the demons. Now, Mashiach, which is Adam, went forth and milked a cow and poured it out as an offering. Through that, the demons became more powerful. So, this is the fall in Zoroastrianism. A couple of interesting differences. Again, we don't see the tree of life here. We don't see Eve involved at all. Isn't that interesting? We have the demons tempting Adam to worship the demons. Now, I don't know what that's what that would be like. Do you imagine a supernatural creature manifests itself to you and asks you to worship it? I mean, that's got to be a terrifying thing. So it may be out of fear, it may be out of confusion. How do you know the difference between God and, and, a, and another supernatural creature like a demon? Maybe Adam thought he was doing what he was supposed to do. But he fucked up. Adam goes and he, he milks a cow 
and he pours the libation out to the demon like the demon asked. He's now worshipped the demon. Now, what did God tell Adam and Eve to do? Good thoughts, good words, good deeds, and don't worship any demons. And that's exactly what, what Adam does. And through that, the demons become more powerful still. So you, you, you might notice, it wasn't Eve in the story that did it. It was Adam. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if there's a little bit of revisionist history going on in the Bible there. And it goes on. And from them arose seven pairs, male and female. And from every one of them, children were born. Every single pair of whom became a race. And from them, the generations of the world arose. So just like we see in the Bible, which, by the way, chapter after chapter of who begot who begot who begot who, you see the world being populated and all of the tribes of the earth scattering across the, across the earth. This is what happens here. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the forbidden tree. All right, so I mentioned we hadn't seen the tree of life before. It didn't happen in the fall story like we see it in the Bible but we're about to see it here. This, this, this section I'm calling the forbidden tree. And the scripture goes like this. The tree Gokard grew in the deep mud within the wide-formed ocean. It is producer of the renovation of the universe, for they prepare its immortality therefrom. The evil spirit has formed therein a lizard as an opponent in that deep water. And for keeping away that lizard, Ahura Mazda created there ten carfish, which at all times continually circle around. All right, so that's strange, right? And you might wonder, where does that parallel in the Bible? What, what's going on here? So there's a tree called Gokard. Now it's in the mud in the middle of the ocean, just like the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, if you remember. And what's so important about this tree? It is the producer of the renovation of the universe, for they prepare its immortality therefrom. What does that mean? Remember, when the final times come, and Zoroastrianism, and the new world is born pure and immortal, and everybody gets to be immortal with God in this perfect realm. The immortality comes from this tree. So, what does that make the tree? The tree of life. Exactly. This is the tree of life. What about this weird bit? The evil spirit has formed therein a lizard as an opponent in that deep water. So there is a lizard, which I want to point out, as something much like a serpent, which we do see in the Garden of Eden, you know, there amongst the tree. It's there in that water. And for keeping away the lizard, God creates ten fish which continually circle around to protect it. And if you think there isn't a parallel in the Bible to that, think again. Genesis says, He drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Whew, buddy. Now, in the Zoroastrian story, the fish at all times continually circle around this tree. 
just like the flaming sword turns every way. And what are they doing? They're protecting the tree of life. In both stories, amazing. And it goes on, it says, The evil spirit's body is that of a lizard whose place is filth. So here I just want to point out, we're seeing this word lizard over and over again to describe this evil spirit that's trying to get to this tree of life. And I think, I don't know the etymology, I don't know what word lizard is, you know, goes to in the Avestan or, or, or you know, in the original language, um, but it seems to me likely that the word lizard and serpent are related, maybe even, maybe even identical. And that brings me to the next section, which is really a much more of a Christian section, but I'm going to call it Armageddon and Kingdom Come. All right, so I, before I jump into this, I want to say that there's an idea in Zoroastrianism that's a very, very Christian idea, and it really blew me away when I learned about it. It is the idea of a Messiah. And the Messiah is important because he's going to be a savior, savior character, but he's also going to be, um, he's going to be instrumental in the second coming. He's going to be instrumental when the world is reborn, when the final battle occurs and the world is reborn. And he's called the Shawashant, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, Shoshant, something like that. That's the Messiah word in, in Zoroastrianism. So I just want to tell you that before I read it so you understand. And it begins like this. After Shawashant comes, they prepare the raising of the dead. Zarathustra asked of Ahura Mazda, Whence does a body form again? And how does the resurrection occur? Ahura Mazda answered, Through me the sky arose, through me the earth arose, which bore the material life. By me the sun and moon and stars are conducted in the firmament. Was this more difficult than causing the resurrection? So you've, so you've got this thing here where, again, the prophet Zoroaster or Zarathustra is asking God, what do you mean the bodies are going to be resurrected? What, what do you, how does that happen? What do you mean? Because he knows, like everyone knows, that when a body dies, it decomposes. You know, how is this going to happen? He's just asking God, what do you mean people are going to be resurrected in their bodies? And he says, God says, what do you mean? I created everything from nothing. Do you think it's difficult for me to raise people from the dead? That's how he answers the question, basically. But here you see something very strange. You see the bodily resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of the dead. This is something promised in the uh, in the Bible. We see it in we see it in Revelations. We see it in the uh, the letters of Paul. That that in the end times, when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected in our bodies. That comes all the way from the Zoroastrian tradition. The figure of Christ, the Messiah, the Shawashant, and the bodily resurrection both come from Zoroastrianism. You know, people say that the Old Testament is prophecies of the New Testament, that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament, and maybe so. But what's really true here is that the New Testament fulfills Zoroastrianism which is older even than the Old Testament. Isn't that something? 
So then God goes on. He says, first the bones of Geomart are roused up, and then those of Mashia and Mashiana, then those of the rest of mankind. All living, or excuse me, all material living beings assume again their bodies and forms. So this is the order of the resurrection. The first man, then Adam and Eve, and then everybody else comes back. He said, then everyone sees his own good deeds and his own evil deeds. And a wicked man becomes as conspicuous as a white sheep among those which are black. They set the righteous man apart from the wicked. The righteous is for heaven, and they cast the wicked back to hell. Three days and nights they inflict punishment bodily in hell. All right, so... So we have everyone being being resurrected bodily from the dead and it becoming obvious to everyone that your sins or your righteousness are just laid bare for everyone to see. It's obvious what kind of person you, you, you were in your life. And then the ones that are wicked are cast into hell for three days and they're inflicted punishment in hell. I think that's interesting too. Because this idea of three days in hell is something that we see, well, if you're a Catholic, you're going to recognize it right away. When Jesus died, he was dead three days before he resurrected. And if you ask a Catholic, they'll tell you that Jesus descended into hell for three days before his resurrection. And so you even see this in Zoroastrianism. And then it says this, then all men will pass into that melted metal and will become pure. All men become of one voice and administered loud praise to Ahura Mazda. All men become of one voice and administered loud praise to Ahura Mazda. Why does that sound familiar? How about Philippians? Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Right? That's what, what's promised to happen. At the end of time, when Jesus returns, every knee shall bow, every tongue conf- confess. All men become of one voice and administer praise to God. Isn't that something? And then it goes on. Ahura Mazda completes his work at, the, at that time. Shawashant, with his assistants, perform a, a yasis ceremony. They prepare hush and give it to all men and all men become immortal forever and everlasting. So I don't know what hush is, but this is something that, again, created from the tree of life, that God is now giving to all of the men who've been purified, who've been resurrected and purified, and it makes them immortal forever and everlasting. Shawashant and his assistants give every man the reward and recompense suitable to his deeds. The religious they convey to paradise. Ahura Mazda seizes the evil spirit and burns the serpent in the melted metal. And the stench and pollution which were in hell are burned in that metal. And hell becomes quite pure. He brings the land of hell back for the enlargement of the world. The renovation arises in the universe by his will. And the world is immortal forever and everlasting. So I'm sure you notice it, but it says God seizes the evil spirit and burns the serpent and melted metal. So here again you see the evil spirit and the serpent or the lizard. That language you see again, just like we see it, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. 
and unique, unique to this story. Everything is purified, including hell. In this case, hell is purified and brought back in to this, to this new perfect world. Everything is brought back into union and harmony, just like it split in the beginning, right? When the force of good and evil were split, split off into two sets of opposites, or a set of opposites, I should say. Things are now being reunited, and that's the final perfection. That's the new Jerusalem, forever and everlasting. So that's the story, guys. That's the Zoroastrian creation story. I don't know what you think, but this brings me to my conclusion. Did you see the many parallels from Zoroastrianism to Judaism and Christianity? Did you know the origins of these stories went back far before Judaism was canonized religion? How does that make you feel? Do you feel that I'm undermining the legitimacy of Judeo-Christianity by pointing this out? Or does this strengthen the revelation by tying it to a tradition far older, by making it more universal? See, I'd remind you that the Magi, who came to see the Christ child, the first to recognize his divinity, were Zoroastrian priests. The Magi, that's what they called their priests. How does that make you feel? I confess, for me at least, it only deepens my convictions. Just as we saw way back in Season 1, Episode 62, in the Sumerian and Babylonian stories, we have a strange kind of continuity. It transcends time and tribe and culture. It strings together Semites and Aryans, Hellenes and Vedic Indians. We see in varied and disparate peoples a coherent thread of truth, a single revelation. Such a fantastic fact gives me hope. It gives me hope that mankind has more to unite us than we believe. For in our foundational myths, we find ourselves brothers and sisters, regardless of race or creed. We are made in the same image, after all. Each of us carries a Mazda and Ariman in our hearts. Each of us long for the Savior to come. And each of us live towards the same ultimate fate. So I'll leave you with the prime directive of Ahura Mazda to his people. Go forth with good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. Amen. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode